0: Hello everyone, it's April 10th, 2018. This week we talk about those Falcon 9 fairings that almost made the net, and we talk about Virgin Galactic's VSS Unity that almost made it to space. But that's par for the course, I haven't said it in a while, space is hard, and liftoff. <music> And the, the tower. Welcome to episode 153 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. How are you doing, David? All right. How are you doing this week?
1: I'm doing pretty good. Let me apologize right now because there's some noise in the background. I don't know how much is going to come through in the final episode, but I have a 3D printer sitting next to me running. I am printing a model of Tiangong 1 for our Splashdown Bingo winners. We're going to give one of them a model and one of them a book. And pro- I think we probably need to throw something else into the second one because this model is um, going to be pretty huge. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's bigger than I thought it was going to be. It's quite impressive. Now, this is just going to be the model. It's just going to be the 3D print, no paint, no coloration. But is that something right. you could do? Because I imagine so in it because I think it would yeah. very much merit that effort because it's a pretty cool looking I'm going to leave that as an
1: exercise for the winner. Sure. <laughs> I'm already putting enough time and plastic into this thing as it is. I also want to say that we're going to go ahead and choose a winner this week because I don't think we're going to see any more updates. The only problem is that uh, I was not paying attention to the map uh, we just used a, a map that's been used in the past. It's a projection of the Earth that I don't recognize, and so it's really hard for me to tell. The grid is square to the j- or to the uh, to the JPEG, but the map is not an equal area projection. It's you know, it, it looks kind of weird. So I got to figure out what projection it is first so I can figure out where where the satellite actually came down. So I can figure out what what those lines represent in terms of latitude and longitude, uh, which is a huge headache. And uh, I'm an idiot for not having thought about this. Uh, but next time uh, this happens, I'm really going to encourage the organizers to find a an equal area map to use and we'll build a new one
0: maybe in the future we could do a what you could do is just ask for actual coordinates just say hey send me your gps coordinates and then we'll pick whoever's closest
1: yeah and so that's that's something that i've thought about so i was discussing this on twitter with somebody and um, i think what what should happen is we need to build an actual website and just let people click on the map and instead of having entire squares that they claim we can have people choose individual coordinates and you know to begin with we might do something like um we might limit how close guesses can be, you know. Say, okay, if you click here, you know, nobody can guess within a, a mile in each direction. And then, as things begin to fill up, allow the density to get a little closer and a little closer. I don't know. We'll
0: have to figure that one out. So, how how's your move been? Well, it's been you know a little bit hectic, but uh, I'm adjusting. I'm getting settled in. You know, it's it's always a big change you know especially if you're moving from a relatively warm climate to a colder one so that's Mm -hmm. one thing i saw snow yesterday morning which was weird wow yeah. yeah, that's and disturbing. I, and it wasn't even that cold the previous night. And then I wake up and there's snow. But I mean, it all melted within a couple of hours. But still, that's strange for me. So I'll adapt to it. I'm not used to cold weather. Well, I mean, I am a little bit. I'm just complaining. I'll be fine. I'm very adaptable if nothing else. That's like one thing I'm good at. You can You could drop me anywhere in the world and I think I'd figure it out within a couple of months. So anyway, you, you have a Tiangong printing in the background. Hopefully, if I do my job well enough, no one will hear it.
1: Well, hey, you know, if, if it sounds super clear, I guess that's a um, an advertisement for Prusa 3D printers. Because the Mark Three is, it's really quiet. It's in silent mode right now, and I can't... Like, all I can hear is the fan. I can't really even hear the, the stepper motors. Yeah.
0: So let's move on to um, the weekly game that we play instead of Splashdown Bingo. So who, who are our winners for this week in spaceflight history?
1: <laughs> all right. So we have three out-and-out winners. That's Ben Haller, Ian Sadi, and Mike Carper. Congratulations, Mike, or I guess welcome. I think this is uh, his first time guessing. And then also partial credit goes to Valentin Frank, who was very, very, very close. Uh, Valentin guessed... Uh, so, well, the clue for this week was uh, for sale no longer. And Valentin Frank guessed AsiaSat 1, which launched on April 7th, 1990. In fact, the actual This Week in Spaceflight History is the 13th of April 1990. That actually falls in this week. And it was the relaunch. Uh, of Palapa B2 as Palapa B2R. Um, first, I have to say thank you to Delta Via 4.3 for pointing this out a couple years ago. I was like, oh yeah, that would make a good This Week in Space Flight History, so I, I wrote it down. So, you guys might remember some of these names. Back in February of 1984, STS-41B launched Palapa B2 and Westar 6. Um, they both had identical upper stage issues that resulted in um, then both going into wrong orbits. And so they did some tweaking with the satellites and got them back down to an out, uh, an orbital altitude that shuttle could reach. And actually, uh, really amazing rescue uh, mission was done. They, they um, were, were very successful in putting these guys into uh, you know nice and easy orbits to get to. Back in episode 132, we talked about the capture of both of these satellites um, during STS-51A. That took place in November 1984. Um, and the clue for that one was, I think, just for sale. Um, and so this time I had to make it for sale no longer in give ourselves a little bit of a callback. So they brought these satellites back down to earth. In this instance, I'm specifically going to talk about Palapa B2R. It was refurbished and the contract that they had with NASA for the initial launch included NASA agreeing to relaunch the vehicle if ever that was required. Um, And so after um they decided to recover these guys there was you know the whole insurance business trying to figure out what's what's going to get paid out and basically when all that was happening nasa agreed to relaunch this vehicle on shuttle for 25 million dollars and then uh, the commercial space launch act was passed which was intended to encourage commercial launch companies to build this economy that supported commercial launch um, and part of that was basically telling Shuttle, you can't fly commercial payloads anymore. Um, you can't compete in here. And so they decided to launch on a Delta and they ended up having to pay twice that. So $50 million. And so all of a sudden, the you know, the budget kind of goes crazy. And uh, for launch nerds, it was a Delta 6925.8 if you're keeping track. So then I have a quote uh the the source for this uh this weekend space flight history event um comes from satel.com or tell, I guess. So I'm going to quote directly from the article there because I I thought this was a really good phrasing here. In the end, Palapa B-2 made history twice. First, it was one of two satellites, the other was Westar 6, launched side by side in the cargo bay of the same shuttle mission, in which both experienced the very same perigee motor stage malfunction. Both satellites went into useless low orbits of the same altitude. Second, Palapa B-2 and Westar 6 were the first satellites in history to be retrieved and relaunched. Only Palapa B-2, however, was relaunched at the Cape where it had started its incredible journey of millions of miles six years earlier. Finally, Palapa B-2 had arrived safely back on Earth after 288 days in orbit, having traveled 119 million miles in space.
0: Yeah, 119 million miles in space, but in circles. But yeah, it still counts. So, uh, what is our clue for next week?
1: Next week, in 2010, the clue is 150 million kilometers of travel ends in a popped tire.
0: And when you say popped tire, you mean like a blown out tire? I mean a popped tire, David. No one says that, though. Does anyone ever say popped tire? Tire. Yeah, I do.
1: Yeah, you popped a tire.
0: You have a blowout or a flat tire, but I guess so a popped tire. Yeah,
1: I've been on the side of the road and gone, oh, I popped a tire.
0: You've said that. I've never said popped a tire or heard anyone say it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, so if you think you know what that clue is in reference to, give us a tweet with a hashtag this Week SF and good luck. Good luck, everybody. First up in the news, uh, an update on SpaceX fairing recovery efforts. So it looks like they're getting closer and closer, huh? Mm-hmm. I thought that this was all SpaceX, but they're actually working with another company, or at least that's... The assumption right because there's no there's nothing official but we have some good evidence that uh, they are working with a Canadian company that specializes in this sort of thing which is basically like guided control of parachutes so seems
1: like a good thing to farm out doesn't it yeah
0: it absolutely does except that I didn't even know that that was something that there was a company out there that specialized (laughs) in like I didn't know that that was a thing but yeah if it exists (laughs) then go ahead and do it yeah and so this is all because of a camera shot that someone got of a half of a fairing at a facility I think it's a future SpaceX facility this is a current property that they own but they're not doing anything with it yeah just like storage it looks like a giant very old warehouse of some sort and there's just a fairing sitting out in the parking lot with one SpaceX employee Standing next to it, and so there are some words that can be made out. I think that that's the photo that I'm referring to, and so you can see a logo on a crate. Yeah, on a crate, and so it says MMIST, and that's M Mist. I don't know how to say it. I'm guessing it's M Mist, and this is a parafoil manufacturer, and they also specialize in like guidance control of of guided parafoil
1: systems. Yeah. So it's it's kind of cool that we got that, but it's even cooler that we got photos of a parafoil hanging up in a warehouse, presumably getting folded and and packed. I just think that's super, super cool to get to see some of this hardware. Cause I mean, you know, everybody's seen fairings, like that's not a big deal, but to see some of these more intricate systems, like um, one of the first times that a, that a spacex, fairing washed up on a beach it was so fascinating to see photos because there's you know there's equipment inside the fairing there's a gopro and there's you know a little computer module sitting in there and what does this do and what are they what are they doing with this and so it's cool to get to see more of this but this comes from an fcc environmental assessment that was published and it includes uh like i said uh an image of the of a parafoil uh being folded up and then um some renders of how they actually attach to the fairing. Um, It's kind of a beautiful little system. And then um, some information about uh, the two systems. So here's the thing is there's not one parachute. There are actually two parachutes, and I guess we probably should have seen this coming. So even though the the fairings have got cold nitrogen gas thrusters to orient them on the way down, they also have a drogue parachute that deploys at 50,000 feet to help orient the fairing and also to basically pull the trigger on the, on the larger suit and help pull it out of its um, containment. So the canopies are both made of nylon uh, the suspension lines are made of Kevlar, and there are um, measurements for both of these. We'll link to a Reddit post that kind of summarized the FCC assessment, and then we'll also uh, link to the assessment itself. And yeah, Dan says that these are pretty pretty standard materials, for sure. But it, it's cool to like get details, you know? Pro- I mean, yeah, probably things we could have guessed, but to see the actual sizes of these things... So I'll just read some numbers. I know numbers are are pretty boring, but the uh, the area of the uh, they have two different drogue types and two different parafoil types. So it sounds like they they may have done an update here. So the drogue chute went from 63 square feet to 113 square feet, and then the uh, the parafoil went from 17 well almost 1,800 square feet to 3,000 square feet. So these things actually exist in real life, you know?
0: Okay, so what is the difference, or why is there a difference in the in the sizes of these chutes? Why the difference in area?
1: Yeah, my guess is that they they did an update, that they originally had a smaller size and they upgraded to a larger size. Does that seem reasonable?
0: It does. I, I was just wondering if we knew exactly why, because we're looking at two different sizes here. So this is just because they, they pretty much figured out that they needed a larger parachute, or should I say parafoil? Is that maybe the more correct term? A larger parafoil in order to get a more precise landing. Okay.
1: Fairings are such a weird thing to land because they have oh, yeah. They have so much surface area compared to their mass because most of the time when you're using systems like this, it's on boxes,
0: right? <laughs> yeah. This this company, I'm sure this is the weirdest thing that they've ever been asked to guide back down to Earth. <laughs> it is such a strange and thing. And likely
1: from the highest altitude, right? Oh yeah.
0: It's kind of like someone says, hey, can you land a boat in the middle of the ocean? But in a net so you don't so it doesn't touch the water i mean it's all very just a strange request but i guess that's what happens when you do business with spacex
1: um so a couple of other fun little details um So these drogue chutes deploy at 50,000 feet, and they want to recover them as well. Um, But so far, they say that the recovery efforts have been very difficult, which I interpret to mean that they haven't actually recovered any of these so far. Um, But basically, they hit the water, they're very, very small, and they sink. And so it's like those are the two worst conditions for recovering something. Um, But they have uh, an engineering solution for the future, and uh, my guess is that that's a, an airbag attached to the, to the drug chute. Um, we'll, we'll see. Then they also confirmed that these fairings have data modules, which we know that's a thing, but they've also added strobe lights, which is pretty awesome. And uh, they also confirmed that right now they are only recovering one half of the fairing and that they will jump up to two fairings once they're you know successfully recovering these things. So not only are they just attempting to recover one of them, but they only have the recovery equipment in one of the fairings. So they're, you know, spending half the money because I, I guess you it's pretty hard to attempt to recover two fairings, you know.
0: Right. I'm trying to remember the numbers or the estimated numbers. What a fairing both have together in its entirety is something like is it $6 million, something like that? Yeah. So it's pretty remarkable that they're putting so much effort into recovering these, and I don't know how much it costs to do all this, but it can't be cheap. And then, once they're done with Block 5, which, granted, is probably going to be several years from now, and they move on to BFR, which is going to be the only way that they launch anything into orbit, then they're not going to need that system anyway. So they are putting a lot of effort into something for a relatively short period of time, and who knows if they're even going to be successful doing it. Although I think that they eventually will be.
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't think that bfr is going to cannibalize falcon 9 traffic as quickly as they say it's going to but yeah so i, I did a quick google and it's um six thousand for both of the fairings so each i'm sorry 6 million <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's 3 million for each fairing half dan in the chat has an interesting note he says that um they're partially expensive because they're trying to recover them. So, just the fact that they are recoverable makes them a little more expensive. And I guess that's like the carbon fiber construction is is adding to the cost, but I kind of figure that that's something they would do anyway, right, for the for the weight.
0: As far as I know, before they ever attempted to do the recovery, they said that that's how much those fairings cost. But then again, that might be because they did have it in mind to recover them yeah. the whole yeah. time. So,
1: Okay, so so Dan is is quoting reddit uh in general saying that that their materials are more expensive being able to be recovered so i'll buy it that that sounds pretty reasonable sure um and then finally before we leave this topic elon tweeted about the iridium 5 uh fairing uh they successfully recovered it intact uh it missed the boat or maybe the boat missed it but elon tweeted this gorgeous photo of this clamshell (laughs) sitting on the water I mean, it's a super, super calm sea. And it's just like kinda there, kind of floating there, just a happy fairing floating on the water. A little bit of water inside.
0: It almost looks as though they might not even. I mean, it's not true, but <laughs> like, do they have to capture these things? Because they could just land them in the ocean and go pick them up.
1: Yeah. I mean, the ocean would have to be really, really still for that. Yeah. Limit.
0: But I mean, just as long as salt water didn't get inside, I think that the outside would be, you know, enough. Well, salt enough. water did get inside. So yeah, they, they would have to figure out a way to prevent that from happening. But once they did that plastic wrap, yeah, something. I mean it, it's pretty much already built like a boat. Put a little outboard motor on there. All right, let's move on to our next topic, and that is uh spaceship two, uh named VSS Unity. Um so finally, Yay. Virgin Galactic actually get something, well, not quite into space, but they're getting there, maybe, but we'll talk about that later. So, on the 5th, I think it was, uh, the Assist Unity actually powered on its engine for the first time, its hybrid rocket motor slash engine. I guess motor is the more accurate term. I'm not sure which. And this was out in the Mojave Desert. Uh, I believe it launched from the spaceport way out there. It was carried aloft by the VMS Eve, which is the big plane, and that was up to 14. Oh, and I'm going to use just metric here because there's a lot of like numbers and <laughs> Involved, and I was like, I'm not interested in feet today. So I'm just going to go with metric. Climb to 14,200 meters. So about 14 kilometers. You see how easy that is. And then, uh, yeah, so at 14,200 meters, it was dropped from VMS Eve. And it burned its engines or slash motor for about 30 seconds. And it climbed like at an angle of 80 degrees, which uh, I didn't know it was that steep. I mean, it makes sense because that's mm-hmm. what you want to do. But 80 degrees is right. pretty intense. So I can only imagine if you were a passenger on board what that would be like, you know, pretty much looking straight straight up.
1: I've got a feeling with this kind of acceleration, it doesn't matter what direction you're pointing in.
0: <laughs> I suppose not, but if you got a good window to look at, which I think that they do, yeah, it's uh-huh. got to be pretty neat. Quite a ride. And so it reached a speed of Mach 1.87, so almost Mach 2. And then from there, yeah, it coasted up to 25,700 meters, so almost 26 kilometers. A 30-second burn, but that was actually the highest that uh, they have achieved so far. So their last launch, which was the VSS Enterprise, I don't know if the one that ultimately ended like in the demise of the Enterprise, I don't know if that was the highest altitude that they had gotten to date because i think that that was uh that one was launched several times if i'm not mistaken right like maybe two
1: so yeah so unity uh flew to uh Mach one point seven eight this time and enterprise's top speed um was Mach one point four three and its maximum altitude was uh twenty two thousand meters so yeah, this this is a a step forward. It's it's pretty cool to see that continue to to climb.
0: So this flight reached twenty five point seven kilometers. Enterprise was just twenty two kilometers. But the weird thing is, is that obviously. The whole idea of these flights is to take tourists to space, and space doesn't officially begin until you're at the (laughs) 100-kilometer mark. And I know if I was a paying customer, paying all this money, I would want those astronaut wings And As far as I understand, you do not get them unless you can make that 100-kilometer mark. So these are just test flights. but. Uh, what's interesting is that the maximum altitude that the VSS Unity could reach, that would actually be about 80 kilometers, and that's because of the various upgrades that they made to this new spaceship. Because of the accident that happened you know, several years ago, they had to make some safety upgrades, and so that has added some weight to it. So it's simply not capable now of reaching 100 kilometers. They hope to be flying paying customers up to the 80-kilometer mark by sometime this year. I don't know if that's still on the books because that's a claim that they made last year. But with this current configuration, how are they going to ever get up to 100 kilometers? I mean, I suppose they might make some future changes to the propulsion system. I don't know, but there's no word on that. But I just know that if I was a paying customer, I might actually want that 100 kilometers. I mean, it would still be an awesome ride. Don't get me wrong. It seems like not only too little too late in terms of time, but now they're actually lowering their maximum altitude and I don't get my astronaut wings. I mean, assuming that I could afford to fly on this thing. <laughs> right. I'm thinking at this point I might have to go with Blue Origin because uh
1: Yeah, with all this uh, wonderful podcast money.
0: Yeah, I know. I'm talking about this like I have an option. Yeah. I think <laughs> I think we're going with Blue Origin, you guys. Yeah. Yeah.
1: No, I, I I'm totally I, I totally hear you. I mean, like that's definitely something that you that you think about as a space nerd.
0: So I would be interested. To know what the specific changes that they made were to the VSS Unity, and I don't know how much more mass it added, but clearly it you know it does way more than mm-hmm. the Enterprise did. So, are they going to upgrade the engine itself so that they could push it up to that 100 kilometer mark, or are they just going to say, Hey, let's go ahead and call it at 80 and you don't get astronaut wings? Which maybe most people don't care, but I kind of do.
1: Dan in the chat uh, says, Speaking from experience, <laughs> scaling hybrids absolutely sucks. So, if if they're going mm-hmm. to do that, it's probably going to be a, a new motor altogether. And
0: they've had so many issues in the past. They've actually changed their propellants several times, I think two times. I, I think they changed to one, changed to another, then went back to the other one, and they might have even changed again since then. They they just can't seem to settle on exactly how the propulsion system is going to work. Well, and I, f- now I
1: feel like it's less about you know figuring out how to settle and more about testing all the options and making an informed decision.
0: Okay, well, can they make an informed enough decision to settle on one? Because I feel like that they've kind of flip-flopped on that. Like, I mean, whatever gets it done. Sure, but it seems that there's a little bit of a intransigence. That's my $5 word today. <laughs> Good word. So let's move on to our third topic for this week. All right, so next up, Interstellar Glory arrives on the scene. All right, so yeah. what is Interstellar Glory?
1: Yeah, nobody has known about these folks, but now we have a, a, new, a new company launching to space, hopefully. So on Thursday the 5th, this new rocket launched from Heiko launch site. I guess is the full name, on Hainan Island in the ocean south of China. And so it's called Hyperbola 1S. It flew above the Karman line and they reported a maximum speed of over 1200 meters per second. So this is a small solid rocket, uh, sounding rocket, and they were mostly trying to validate the engine as well as some cool computer modeling that they used. They say that they virtually tested the rocket during design before they actually flew it. Uh, so this is Hyperbola 1S. The actual rocket that they're going to fly is going to be called Hyperbola 1, and it's a 1.4 meter rocket with a 300 kilogram carrying capacity to low Earth orbit, and they're saying that they want to have it flying by June 2019. Then after that, they're going to introduce a, a larger rocket called Hyperbola 2, which is a 1.2 five meter uh liquid rocket with a two ton capacity to low earth orbit and in the photos they depict it with falcon 9 landing legs and grid fins so uh, reusability is uh, being kept in mind here it seems and then uh, so all of this was pointed out to me this morning by sam moore thank you so much sam um, he also did a little bit of analysis here that I thought was interesting. He pointed out that Hyperbola One shares a similar takeoff thrust and takeoff mass with Quijao One, which means that they likely are using the same motor uh, for the first stage. Um, and then Quijao One also shares this motor with DF-26. We we know that that relationship exists, and uh, DF-26 is a medium-range ballistic missile. It sounds like this is uh, basically a Quijao One with a different second stage.
0: They're showing the rocket with, like, you see those SpaceX landing legs on it, but is that not, and I'm not just saying it's because it's China, is that not just, like, propaganda because... Is that feasible for a launch vehicle of this size? I mean, like, obviously they're a long way from that, but you can't just slap Falcon 9 landing legs and grid fins on the thing, you know, and expect it to actually work. Uh, There's a little bit more to it than that.
1: Yeah, I've got a feeling this is a style choice. It's, uh, you know, like an artist render, but I mean, landing legs, there are only a couple of ways to build them. Um, and SpaceX has kind of validated one, one version. So as a reference, uh, Falcon 9 is 3.7 meters in diameter and Hyperbola 2 is 2.5. So, you know, it it is a smaller vehicle, but, you know, I feel like this... This strategy of, of slapping landing legs on rockets is something that we're going to see a lot of um, until we come up with a, a new paradigm that, you know, kind of takes over. Presumably just landing right back on the launch pad.
0: That is what SpaceX wants to do with BFR. And, of course, the, the other option is sort of like what Blue Origin is doing. Of course, we haven't seen that work with a very large rocket, although we have seen it with uh, New Shepard, you know, that it has those legs that sort of fold out. From the lower surface of the fuselage, like they're actually embedded within it, so that they don't protrude. Um, so it's a little bit more streamlined. Um, it looks kind of neat, but you don't get as much of a stable base though, because they they don't cover as wide of an area. But yeah, you, you could have legs come down in that fashion as well. But I guess that hasn't been like as you said proven for a large orbit class rocket.
1: But yeah, I mean it's going to be interesting to see how you know different companies address just the whole landing leg. Uh, structure and whether that's going to, you know, whether we're going to see things kind of fall out based on size where, you know, large rockets tend to use a particular style of landing leg and small rockets use a different, you know, it's going to be interesting.
0: All right, let's do some short and sweet, and we just got two. What's our first one? All
1: right, so first up, Astra Space had its flight scrubbed. Uh, Jeff Faust tweeted a link to their FAA license last Monday, just before our last episode. Their launch attempt of Rocket One, Yawn, uh, was on Friday the 6th, and it was reported as a last-minute scrub by the Kodiak Daily Mirror, although that is... That article is behind a paywall. Uh, More information isn't super likely to be released at this point on this particular launch attempt, I mean. Uh, So we're just going to have to wait for their next attempt. The Space Tech Symposium at the end of this month features Chris Camp, the Astra Space CEO, or the Stealth Space CEO, um, as a speaker. And so that likely indicates a company reveal at the end of the month. So look forward to that.
0: Next up, uh, Remove debris is now in orbit. So SpaceX's CRS-14 launch carried, among other things, a new experimental satellite for removal of space debris the satellite's launch was delayed amid concerns that launching such a large satellite from the ISS may pose a safety risk. Uh, Most satellites released from station are 10 kilograms or smaller. Removed debris has a mass of 100 kilograms, so much bigger. Uh, The experimental satellite carries three types of technologies for debris capture and deorbiting, a harpoon, a net, and a drag sail. It will also aid future debris removal spacecraft in their missions by testing a LiDAR system for more accurate targeting. So that's pretty cool. I think you would Made the observation that this thing barely fits out of the airlock so this mm-hmm. is a much larger satellite than they've ever removed um but that's pretty cool
1: yeah so this is flying out of kibo which is or the the gem airlock which is really cool i assume that it would have been in the trunk of the dragon
0: but if it was in the trunk of the dragon where would they store it until it's time for release like how can you i mean i'm sure that there's a way but it, it might be more difficult than you'd think plus they might have to do some sort of work on it i don't know but If you put it in the Trunk of the Dragon, what would you do with it until it's ready to be launched, I guess is my question.
1: Well, I mean, you you grab it with Dexter and then dock Mm. Dexter and just have Dexter hold on
0: to it. Just have it hold on to it? Okay. Yeah. Okay, stand
1: by it. We're looking at it.
0: Questions, comments, and correction burns, and we just got one nice, really good... Correction and elaboration, I guess we could say, on what the deal is with NOAA and cameras. Alright, so this came from NeroBro in our subreddit.
1: Yeah, and I kind of feel like I should just read this uh, word for word. Is that okay?
0: He pretty much uh, lays it all out. Yes. So it's pretty succinct
1: and there, there's some good information in here. Okay, so here I go with my NeroBro impression. Uh, so on the NOAA and FCC things, let's start with the FCC. The company I work for and the company I worked for previously both have had dealings with the FCC. The latter owning several licenses and the former, essentially squatting on a frequency band. The FCC is pretty picky about you using frequencies you own. Bandwidth is very, very scarce, and they want to know that you're going to be using it. On one side, they give you a lot of time to figure it out, often years. But when the deadline hits, they will send trucks to find out if you're using it. It's common to set up little links to keep a frequency, quote unquote, in use. So you can say you're using it, whether or not they're actually being used for something. So yes, David, uh, frequency squatting is a thing. Um, I'm really happy NOAA are the ones who do Earth observation licenses. First, it means they get a little more money. And that's a very good thing for an organization that most people don't think much about. And yeah, that's, that's a great point. Uh, second, you can imagine that if it was the NSA, CIA, or any other military branch that you had to quote unquote check in with to get a license to show off pictures you took from space, that wouldn't go down well ever. NOAA has jurisdiction more or less because they were there first, as I understand it. They put up Earth observation satellites early on and have more or less kept an eye on things. I'm glad they did, and I'm glad I get to sniff their <laughs> image data kind of gross um Uh but yeah i i think that's this totally answered all of our questions and a little bit more but yeah i guess noah just was there first and i did a little bit of, of a little bit of nosing around and that's kind of the conclusion i was beginning to come to i wasn't quite sure but yeah that sounds reasonable
0: it is still a bit weird though i mean just because they were there first as you say i mean that means that they get to vet you know who can make earth observations from space, I totally agree. I wouldn't want the NSA or the CIA or some other military branch, you know, responsible for that. Right. But I mean, just because they're called NOAA doesn't make it any better necessarily. I suppose they they have somewhat more, you know, benign motives than those other organizations. But still, it is a bit weird, though. Like, why would they have that authority? It's still. You know, very incongruous.
1: Remember that this is U.S. only, right? And and mm-hmm. the way that the U.S. government works is, you know, basically licensing duties are assigned to, to organizations as they are established. And so, since NOAA was kind of in the position to control this, you know, Congress gave them. I'm assuming this was congressional gives them the ability to say who else in the U.S. can can handle this, and then unless there's a good reason to change that kind of just sticks with whoever got this permission first from from Congress, so
0: Good enough, I guess. Um, I would much rather have NOAA than the NSA, for sure.
1: Yeah, I think that's a good enough point to make me just shut up and just like, okay, <laughs> okay, <Yeah>. gotcha.
0: <laughs> Lest we incur their wrath, because I'm sure they're listening right now. Moving on then to upcoming spaceflight events. We got three of them this week, all three launches. What's our first one here?
1: So first up is a PSLV-XL flying Irnus-1. So uh, Irnus is a replacement satellite for Irnus-1H. Um, Part of the IRNAS stands for Indian Regional Navigation Satellite System. Um, So it's, you know, an Indian version of GPS, which is uh, pretty cool because it's military and civilian. So that's always a good thing. Uh, This is flying um, on April 11th at 2234 hours UTC.
0: And next up is uh, April 14th, the launch of an Atlas V and the 551 configuration. That's pretty neat. Um, and that's launching AFSPC-11. I don't know if that's supposed to be pronounced a certain way. So afspc Stands for Air Force Space Command, and this is, I guess, number 11, putting into orbit uh, a continuous broadcast augmentation SATCOM satellite. So this will be placed into geosynchronous orbit. It will continuously relay data from existing military communications satellites to support senior leaders and combatant commanders. That's all via launchlibrary.net. The mission will also launch a number of secondary payloads hosted on the ESPA Augmented Geostationary Laboratory Experiment, or EAGLE. All right, I don't think I recall EAGLE, but that's a cool acronym. Or it's a recursive, not a recursive acronym, but a slightly recursive one, right? Because it's the ESPA Augmented Geostationary Laboratory Experiment.
1: Maybe a nested acronym.
0: That's launching April 14th with a launch window from 2000 hours UTC through 0245 UTC. So that's a nice big launch window, and you can watch that on ula launch dot com if you like, or YouTube.
1: And, and do look up the Eagle satellite because it's kind of weird looking, and I I like it. Finally, we have a Falcon 9 full thrust flying TESS. I'm so excited. So TESS is the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. It's going into a slightly eccentric uh, high Earth orbit, and it's going to be searching for exoplanets using the transit method. So it's going to watch for stars that dim as their planets uh pass in front of their face. So it's going to be able to do some really powerful exoplanet work. Um, They're mostly looking, I mean, we're we're hoping for Earth-sized objects and it can see Earth-sized planets. And then of course, it can see anything bigger than that. It's going to be really cool. I'm really looking forward to to test data. So this is flying April 16th at 2232 hours UTC. And that's definitely going to be something to tune into if you
0: can. All right. So I guess that wraps it up. Cue the music, most of which is brought to you by Ronald Jenkins. Check him out at ronaldjenkins.com and some of which is brought to you by Tim Dodd, the Everyday Astronaut.
1: If you liked this episode, please review us on iTunes and Stitcher.
0: And if you enjoyed our show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. Thanks to our $5 and up Patreon supporters in the Ground Control chat room listening to the show live. You
1: can connect with us on Twitter and Reddit at Orbital
0: Podcast. You can send questions and comments to info at theorbitalmechanics.com.
1: For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, please visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com.
0: Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t shirts, and hoodies. So that's it, and we will see you in one week on orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody.